Welcome to the Private Practice Made Perfect podcast with me, Kathy Love. I'm a business coach who helps allied health professionals run powerful and profitable businesses in the disability sector. Join me for cutting-edge interviews with leaders in the allied health and business fields, along with plenty of practical content that you can use to make your business practice perfect. Wei is our guest in for some business conversation today. Wei Yo is the founding CEO of Umbo. Welcome. Thanks, Kathy. It's great to see you again after two years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been a good thing for me to look up, but I was just so excited to chat with you. It's a bonus. We get to record it and um, share it share it around. So, uh, run us through Umbo. What is this? Uh, what is this mythical creature? So Umbo exists because of a very specific problem that we are all in this allied health community very familiar with, which is the lack of access to um, specifically speech and occupational therapy and specifically for families that are in rural and regional Australia where often they're waiting up to 18 months to get access to services. And we all know how devastating that can be, particularly if you think about a child who's typically picked up around three or four and the impact that has on that child's life to not get therapy when they need it. So Umbo, it's a social enterprise. We specifically focus on that social impact and we measure that and we report on it. And we try and solve the problem by connecting these families with clinicians that are based online, that are all around Australia. And we try and reduce that up to 18 month timeframe to hopefully as little as a week. Very, very cool. So I really want to talk about the social enterprise piece, but let's just lift the hood a little on Umbo. Your team just grows. Every time we speak, there's a couple more and a couple more and a couple more. Paint that picture for us. Yeah. I mean, actually, to to just push back on that a little bit, while we did grow last year, we did also shrink and now we're growing again. So I think that's a really interesting point to be completely transparent about yeah. is that growth in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing unless the timing is right. And I think part of our growth last year was not necessarily sensible growth and it wasn't staged growth. It was a little bit explosive at the beginning of the pandemic and it was sort of reactionary. And then we realized that it wasn't something we wanted to maintain. So we scaled back and then now we're growing again in a much more sensible and manageable way. Um, but I think we're now on the pathway to the right forms of growth. So we're adding more clinicians. We are always seeking speech and occupational therapists to join the team. And that helps us just to reach more and more people because it's not like the demand is going anywhere. There's always a need out there. And our goal really is to make sure we have that supply to match. Yeah. So I call them flurnings. I don't know if you know, if I've ever spoken with you about this, it's a, it's a fail that you learn a lot from a flurn. So all of our clients listening will be saying, yeah, we've heard a rattle on about this. So if we think about those errors that you made, what did you learn from them across last year? Mm, I think one of the key things that I learned as the CEO is to be focusing on consolidated growth rather than chasing new growth. And that there's an expectation really about what you think is the right thing to do. And then there's that thing that you should do. 
And it's really important to be clear that you are making decisions more on the latter than on the former. So we had this impression about, oh, we're growing. That's great. Let's start to set ourselves up for the next phase of growth. And in that process, we lost a lot of consolidation opportunities around the existing growth. Um, You know, you can think about this so many ways. Um, When we go out to find new partnerships, often it's just a simple email to existing partners to ask them, hey, how are you going? Check in. And all of a sudden, new referrals will come through. So it's just very human, I think, to want to chase that new thing. But often focusing on getting the most value out of your existing things is much better. Good reminder that there's lots of different ways to measure growth. Growth isn't bricks and mortar. It's not headcount. It can be those things, but it can actually be a whole lot of other other pieces as well. Um, would you Would you agree? Yeah, I think that the key thing is what's important to you when you measure growth, right? Mm. So, yeah, is it your is it your bottom line? And maybe there are times when your bottom line will, won't grow, but they're actually the most productive periods of time because you're actually setting yourself up the foundation to do the things that will result in later growth. Um, Yeah. And I think, you know, as I get older um, and and more wrinkly, one of the things that I think about is um, timing more and more. And I think Mm. you just sort of gain this natural intuition towards knowing when timing for things is better. And I guess it's interesting because I think about the persona of a founder, a founder by nature is someone who's probably impatient, probably doesn't like the status quo and wants to change the world. And in order to start something, those are the kinds of qualities you need. The problem with maintaining that approach is then you miss out on this factor of timing because you think that you can do anything at any time. But the reality is the world is much bigger than you. So learning to, in some senses, swallow your own sense of pride and ego and um, be Uh, responsive to what's going on in the world around you, that's part of the key to um, stage growth. Yeah. Yep. Do you know about the wealth dynamics profiles? I don't. Tell me. Well, you know, ordinarily I would reach over and Google, but it's, um, it's based on the work Roger James Hamilton, an entrepreneur and visionary kind of guy. Um, And it's based on ancient, I'm going to say Japanese wisdom about the seasons and energy and flow. And it, it sort of, it's a, it's a questionnaire that you do online and then allocates you a certain profile around the seasons, around the energy types. And it then characteristic, it provides you with characteristics of a creator who uses spring energy, a supporter who uses fire and summer energy, a lord who uses steel and winter energy. It's very, very interesting and very, very cool. So when you're not looking for hidden 1950s TV series, 1960s TV series that we just won't mention here. It can be a little hard to find online, but the Wealth Dynamics profile talks about a creator profile who is spring and air and wind and ethereal head in the clouds. But guess what? They don't have any sense of timing. And so they need people further around the seasons and the energy styles to anchor them. And I mean, that sounds like an interesting framework. In general, as a leader, you have to be self-aware. To me, that is absolutely far and away, probably the number one skill set that you need to develop or hopefully have. 
And so that self-awareness helps you to recognize where your strengths are also your limitations and then to surround yourself with people that Correct. will cover. Yeah. Um, Compliment. Yeah, exactly. There's no right way. You just need a range of people. It takes a village. Yes, exactly. And, you know, to be able to um, admit your own faults and weaknesses and where you're short is a huge step in maturity as a leader. And I think it takes a bit of time. A few bruises, a few bumps. Yeah, ego bruises. A couple of pandemics. <laughs> yeah, that's Let's right. Run in. That's right. So speaking of village, let's use that as a segue for you to um, share a bit about how Umbo is set up as a social enterprise. Sure. I'll just sit back and put the kettle on and come back. <laughs> I'm just um, so keen to hear. I guess firstly to state that my, my background is in non-for-profit. So even though I was a physio way back in the day, I have mostly worked in charities, so more familiar with that structure. And then with Umbo, we saw an opportunity to create a business that could generate revenue. Obviously, the NDIS is a significant portion of our income, and it could generate revenue without needing to rely heavily on donations. Now, with a social enterprise, it is essentially a company, so it's closer to a company than it is to a not-for-profit, except embedded within the structure of the company and the constitution and so forth, there are elements there that uh, determine the fact that it is a social enterprise. So one of the things is we have this thing called Mission Lock. And Mission Lock says that the purpose of UMBO is to help people in rural communities get access to speech and occupational therapy. And therefore, all our decisions are guided around that. There's also this thing about profit use. So profit use says that 50% or more of the profit generated by the business will be reinvested back in to the company to help those that are in more marginalised um, communities. And then because of our structure as well, we can take on some philanthropic donations as well to reach those people that are really hard to justify from a commercial sense reaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, and then there's a few other things that are sort of more minor, but they're, they're the kind of key points around being a social enterprise. What that means in terms of day-to-day is really being transparent about it being able to say, this is how our impact is generated and these are the ways in which we're measuring it and talking about it. And then that reporting should really go everywhere, not just to the board or to annual reports, also on our website. We just put it up this week. Um, And to anyone who's interested in understanding how it works. Yeah. How do you bring your team along with this vision? I think that's an interesting question. I, I actually think it's more the other way around. I don't think I'm solely responsible for bringing the team. I think the team brings itself and me along with it too. And it's like anything in life. It's once you draw a line in the sand, people will either be attracted to that or they won't. So we've had some people who clearly don't necessarily resonate with this idea, but it so happens that there are enough people who are skilled and passionate at their jobs who want to join us because of this. And I think, you know, if we talk about recruitment with um, speech and occupational therapists, which is obviously a very tough market Mm -hmm. to try and get, you know, recruitment leads on, um, we almost seem to get a bit of a pass in some senses. Like we managed to get a foot in the door because we are a social enterprise and people are more interested in talking to us. If we were just a standard run-of-the-mill clinic, I would imagine we'd get a lot more doors shut in our faces. Mm. That's interesting. 
that's good. So it's part of your DNA. It's what you do. It's what you're known for. Yeah. Part of your value proposition. Yeah, and and of course we know that health professionals, by and large, are good people. Health professionals they wouldn't be in this industry if they didn't care about the welfare of people. Mm. So what we're saying to health professionals is it's really great that we can help people and change their lives. Now imagine if we can do it for a portion of the population that can't get it, that can't easily get it, like you and I in the cities or in you know built-up areas could get it. It's just like another layer to something that they're already doing. And it's a value add that I think can be very attractive to lots of people. Yeah. Yep. How do you measure, measure it? How do you know it's working? Well, if you go to Umbo's website, umbo.com.au, you'll see just this week we've released our social impact framework. Um, And we start off with some very simple metrics. So first of all, by the way, it's simple because we're young. They should mature as we get older. Um, But the first one is we talk about doing this for rural communities. Well, how many of our clients live in rural communities? And we were very, very pleased because you know sometimes you set this up and you're not sure of the exact results of what you're doing. But we were very pleased to know that 83% of our clients do live in rural communities. So that's a good start. And then we talked about how much travel time is being saved mm. per client because they're not driving three hours plus. Um, so we measured that. We talked about the dollars saved to NDIS. So here's a really good statistic. Because of the model of doing it online, particularly for those families that you would say need to travel more and therefore the NDIS covers that cost of the family traveling or the clinician traveling, we think we have basically doubled the utilization of funds that people get with NDIS. So you're getting twice as much value of your money and therefore we're saving the NDIS a very significant portion of money. Um, And then you can kind of extrapolate other measures from that. So things like how much carbon have we saved? I was going to ask about your carbon neutral plans. Yeah. we've uh, It's within the hundreds at the moment, trips mm. from Sydney to Melbourne return equivalent. I can't remember the exact figure, but it's significant. And of course, we'll grow. And then there's some other things that we want to measure more. So things like wait times, they're a little bit harder because obviously it differs from location to location and speciality to speciality. But how many months of wait time if we cut. And then of course, as any clinic would have, we measure the actual impact of the therapy and we try and aggregate that to a certain extent too. Very, very cool. Very cool. So it all, it like we're kind of down in the clinical kind of conversation, but there's a total line of sight to the social impact as well. Yeah. And it's, it's to say that, you know, we, it's almost like a given really that the clinical outcomes are happening. I'm not, trying to be flippant about it. Mm. But of course, if we're a healthcare business, we should be able to show that the healthcare is working, right? So what we're saying is on top of that, here are all the other ways in which we can make this model work um, and demonstrate a significant social impact to people and planet. Yeah. So since we spoke and we, we know that you deliver online therapy, since we spoke, there's just been this little pandemic thing and everyone- pandemic. Sorry. Oh, yeah. So there's this been this thing. Oh, right. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't affect Sydney, so you're fine. <laughs> That's right. We're immune. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, we could so go down that rabbit hole. Um. So you guys have been kind of front footing online therapy, and you know, so many 
clinicians were sort of scrabbling to catch up and it was part of their five-year plan and they rolled it out in five days. What have been your observations about the delivery of online therapy for kids and families in the last 12, 15 months? What have you observed? First of all, kudos to those clinicians who have transitioned very quickly and um, have been able to maintain Mm. a level of service. Um, So that's the first thing is that hopefully it's encouraged a number of clinicians to go online. However, I will say a surprising number have anecdotally um, just gone back to -to face-to-face and not kept up a significant proportion of online. So that's probably an observation which surprised me a little bit. Um, another observation is, like anything, the less, sorry, the more you put and invest into the training and the capabilities and the systems, the more you're going to get out of it. So we do hear, unfortunately, some stories of, um, I wouldn't say shoddy, but I'll just say- um, Doubtful. Sorry, what was it? Doubtful. Yeah, just sort of tacked on, mm. um, oh, let's just stick a Zoom account on and off we go. Whereas online therapy is not the same as- face-to-face. It's a very different model. So it's a complete rethink. And therefore you have to kind of invest that um, energy. Um, And while we're on the topic, quick plug that we have made our online therapy training free, which is on our website too. Um, So if anyone wants to go on there and learn um, our model of therapy and the way that particularly my co-founder, Ed Johnson, has been practicing it for about a decade, um, have a look at the training videos there. Um, and I guess the the last thing is that you know it is kind of incredible though as a as a sector how much we have pivoted because I remember starting looking into Umbo many years ago and then the amount of resistance was incredible really towards the idea that any of this stuff could be done online. So I won't say that we've gone from a zero to a ten in terms of acceptance of this form of therapy, but we certainly shifted a lot. What have you, thank goodness, just thank goodness, what have you observed about clients, in this case, children and family? What's their appetite for it now? Interestingly enough, I've seen now two or three pieces of evidence that suggest that resistance to online therapy is greater in the clinician population than in the client population. So to cut through that, clients want it, clinicians don't do it enough. So just unpack that for us, please, in a couple of minutes. <laughs> well, I, it's all theory, I guess, but I would yeah. postulate from what I've discussions I've been having the last few years that the resistance comes from the clinicians because a number of reasons, but I think one of them is it sort of fits in the too hard bucket because it does actually you know, require some investment, as I said, yep. and yep. clinicians are so busy surf- servicing the wait lists for mm. face-to-face that to think about sidestepping is been you know out of their brain space and then of course it takes a pandemic to force people to to do some of yeah. that with the clients there is um an, an appetite because that often isn't much of an alternative i think but then i i would also hesitate there's one gray area about this which is that a lot of clinicians and support coordinators say the clients don't want online therapy And when you dig a little bit deeper, you realize it's not really an informed choice Mm. because they haven't really explained what does that mean and how does it work. And so we've just got this constant job to do of explaining how the model works so people can actually make their mind up for themselves. But of course, the bottom line for me in this situation is it is absolutely not our job as clinicians to block people from accessing something that they want. 
So we've we've got a huge sector problem here. If that statistic is correct, people want it, but we're stopping their access to get it. That is so um, far from good practice. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm seeing a potential kind of story that the clinician doesn't message it in a way because they almost don't want the client to want it because they've got to do the change. Potentially. I I mean, I can sort of talk around this topic from not my point of view, but a mm. support coordinator from Tasmania I spoke to a while ago. And she basically said, I used to think that online was a good substitute for face-to-face and now I think it's better. And she said, I think it's better because it forces the clinician to give up their power and to empower the families to take Mm. control. Whereas when you do face-to-face, it's just too easy to do this very hand-holdy model of therapy that Mm. clients tend to like, but in the long run is not that sustainable and not that good for them. Builds dependency, um, positions the clinician as the expert, so on and and so forth. So let's just solve the world's problems in the next, you know, five or six minutes. What sort of shifts are needed from the clinician's perspective? Well, it's it's funny because when I I mentioned that word self-awareness before, that's something I see very highly in our clinicians at UMBO. They're very self-aware and also very humble as a result, or maybe the two just go hand in hand. I'm not too sure. But it's it's a sense of what is my role in all of this and how can I be a party to the family being the experts and determining their own future as opposed to me dictating it. And I, yeah, I don't really know how this would work in terms of the experience of clinicians, but I would imagine that when you graduate from a difficult university course and you've spent a lot of your time and money doing it, you do feel a certain level of, oh, I've got a certificate. I'm the expert. I'm going to go out there and mm. tell Watch it how go. it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to have that kind of energy. But in addition to that, what's really important is the humility to say, you know what, I know nothing about this. Mm. Your lived experience is your world and you're now dictating terms. Um, for me, I think I learned a lot of this when I lived overseas. I spent eight years in Cambodia and China and India, Vietnam, and it was such a humbling experience to have two university degrees and then go into a community and just know nothing straight away, completely over my head. And so you sort of learned, I learned in that scenario to um, give up my power and expertise very quickly. And become available and to listen, to I think potentially so. speak less. Yes, yes, definitely. When was the last time you invested in your non-clinical staff? You know, reputation is everything. And when staff feel under pressure, undervalued or underskilled, service drops, teamwork stops and your business loses money. Contact Lightbulb Training Solutions today for a free customer service analysis so you can create and maintain a remarkable reputation for your business. Lightbulbtraining.com.au So training is going to be part of it, but I think where we're kind of tapping now is that it's a little bit more than just training and being told how to do online therapy. It's a little bit about a shift in some belief systems as well. Mindset, belief. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And that's definitely learnable but it might be more challenging for some people because it requires a a fair bit of self-reflection. So I I know that the training that Ed has developed for our website 
is perhaps less technical than some people would like. I've heard that people kind of want to know things like, oh, how do I do a wheelchair assessment online? That kind of stuff, you, you can, I mean, I, my perspective is you can probably work that out. I think what's more important is getting that fa- the foundational mindset and attitudinal beliefs right. Mm. And then you can kind of launch off in different directions. And I think that's really interesting if you think about uni, um, because when I studied physio a long time ago, it was more about the nuts and bolts of it as opposed to your attitude yep. and your beliefs. The craft, yeah. Yeah. So as we record this, you know, most of the east coast of Australia is, you know, kind of looking down the street and somewhat uh, locked down. And there's a lot, there's been another uplift in online service provision. So based on your comment that it has been a little left behind by some clinicians in that last year's kind of phase, what, what would you like to see at the end of this lockdown phase, as people come out a little kind of hairy and in need of a haircut, but uh, we've got an opportunity here. I think we've got an opportunity to future-proof our businesses, really, because if lockdowns are part of our life for the foreseeable future, um, then the only way to continue that continuity of care um, potentially is to go online. And... um, and yet there are a whole there are a whole range of ways in which that can benefit everybody. So, you know, it, it future proofs your business and it also helps you to go a little bit further afield. One of the things that we love doing is working with rural practices to get them to go even further. Because this is a nice little sweet spot for us where we're not working just with city-based clinicians, but it's those that are already out there and then saying, imagine if you could reach the town. 400 kilometers away and then we can increase the coverage so i think that's really important for um businesses to think about and then also how to utilize their time you know just like i said we we're basically doubling the efficiency of ndis by working online well that has a um you know for a business that has um private clients as well that has an impact on the business too yeah and even if um clients don't stay in an online therapy mode to at least bring it in, not just as an adjunct, but as part of the menu, as part of the service so that it's not being cast away because face-to-face we're back to, you know, schedules, Uh, but to keep it there uh, for blocks, for meetings, for connection, for roundtables, for whatever else, because um, that's where it just earns its keep completely as a beautiful complement to whatever other parts of program the person might be in. Yeah, and you think about the work from home debate, you know, and like how much that's now advanced because of the pandemic, where I don't know many jobs that will end up having office workers back five days a week. It'll probably be a combination of the both of both working from home and office. And then within this mix, there's another interesting discussion where um, people with disability feel a little bit aggrieved that they've been told for a long time they couldn't work from home. Uh, because you know no one will know what they're doing, etc. And then now, all of a sudden, everyone is. So I just think it's something that is happening anyway. And to me, if you're not, as you said, Kathy, it doesn't have to be everything that you do. But if you're not integrating part of this within your practice, you're missing out. Massive loss. Yeah. Yeah, and you're not, and you you're well behind the curve. So it's no better time than the, 
present to integrate it. Keep it on the agenda. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You mentioned something earlier about therapists um, coming out of uni and not having lived experience of disability. There are some, a very small number, but hopefully a very growing number of clinicians that are graduating that do have lived experience of disability. What's your line of sight on on that? It's a perfect timing to be asking this question because we are about to... You are welcome. (laughs) I don't even know what your answer is going to be, but... (laughs) You must be (laughs) observing my emails, um, which is fine because Google is already anyway. So um, I I think this is now, you know, we're we're still young, so it's good to be integrating this as early as possible, but lived experience and representation Mm -hmm. is a big discussion internally at UMBO at the moment. Um, We are talking about an admin position that um, we want representative of the communities we work with. And that's really great. And, and the pool of people who could do that job, you know, with disability and potentially living in rural communities is very high. To me, that's a good start, but it's not enough mm-hmm. because it's a bit too easy. You know, as you said, there are clinicians potentially with disability. We have one already who does and online works beautifully for her because she can't travel long distances when she has, she can schedule her time in and around her physical capabilities of actually working. And then we're also talking about board level representation too. So we really want to have this all the way through the organisation so it's not tokenistic. Fortunately, there are in this country quite a number of good support systems that are government as well that can help us with this. So job access is one of them. And um, so we're just working with those people to ensure that we're getting it right. What would you like it to look like in another couple of years' time for you guys? Well, I think this this representation bit is really yeah. important for us. It's it's really all the way through um, every level informed and representative of the communities that we work with, including disability, rural, um, indigenous, so forth. Um, we want the organisation to to grow, particularly in terms of clinicians, to cover a wide range of skills. Um, you know, we want the clinician body in and of itself to be diverse as well. One of the potential issues that I could see with this model is potentially having an age discriminatory uh, bias, if that's a word. Um, And so we want to make sure we've got clinicians of all different, um, you know, career stages as well. Um, And then we want to make sure that we're covering different geographic parts of Australia. We can talked before about the level of rurality. So that's a measurement around that. Mm -hmm. So we can use that measure to see how remote are we actually going. While we're on the topic of kind of the next couple of years, what else is in your uh, your crystal ball? Ooh. So interestingly enough, probably when we last spoke, we thought that technology would be a big part of what Umbo does in terms of developing technology because we see technology as a way to scale. Interestingly enough, we have actually taken a couple of steps back from that idea and we have always used existing technology, but we see that more on the roadmap for the next few years. We don't necessarily see a need to get into developing technology. And mostly that's been around a couple of things. Firstly, there are so many people that are doing it, mm. we realised, and there's a lot of existing solutions that we can integrate that work really well, and we can support them, a lot of Australian companies and developers. The other thing is we are yet to prove that technology is a limiting factor to our growth and our reach. And when 
And if that becomes apparent, then we'll reconsider what we're doing. But for now, it is really getting, funnily enough, talking about that consolidated growth thing that we were talking about at the beginning, getting our consolidation of growth right and, and getting our core fundamentals right. Um, are we hiring the right types of clinicians? Are we providing them with what they need to do an excellent job, feedback loops, um, you know, measuring social impact, getting our governance right, representation right? There's just you know so many more things to do before we start thinking about adding another um, level of complication. Yeah. I was um, chatting with a business owner this morning and we were trying to define uh, with, a, with a few kind of neat words what that internal growth is. It's more than operations. It's, it's that real kind of go within. And we came up with strengthening uh, as kind of some nice, nice language that was meaningful for her and her team, but um, kind of comes back to those growth me- measures. And we we're talking about how she would actually measure the extent to which she's strengthening her business from the inside. And uh, how did you, how'd you end up? Oh, work in progress. It was a little bit uh, around roles and responsibilities and are the right people in the right roles for the right reasons. That was meaningful, but that's on the back of some work she's also been doing. It was also a little bit about we were trying to work out how to measure flow and how to how we would measure how the biz, how the internal team is reducing friction and increasing flow. So measuring problems that arise, measuring resolution times, measuring um, what they want to be counting down, um, reducing um, just stuff getting stuck, bottlenecks, whether from clinicians and customer service team as well. So, yeah, it was sort of work in in play, but we agreed that um, it is possible to measure some of that. You can't always measure all of it, but to actually be able to measure where things get held up, where things get held up, where where there's tension, where things go wrong. And then would you combine that with more macro measures like client satisfaction? And- potentially, yeah, potentially, potentially. They're all on that one sort of string through the business, aren't they? But um, to just focus on yeah, we, where we arrived was how do we measure that we're reducing friction and increasing flow? Yeah, I think one of the other things, I mean, that I just mentioned client satisfaction, but one of the other things it's Hard to measure, but probably one of the most important things is the team satisfaction, the team mm. coverage, and whether or not you've got that good mesh of different skill sets that are working together and cohesively. And if you have all of that, it's hard to explain. It's like, okay, here's another analogy. It's like when someone who's learning to drive says, how do I know if I've got a flat tire? And you just say, you'll know. Yep. It's the same kind of thing with a team. Like, How it's do you know when a team... Best. Yeah, but it's impossible not to know. However, you might not have... It's hard to describe. Um, and so when you have a team working cohesively that are all playing to their strengths, what does that feel like? Again, I'd say you just kind of know. So I think that's something that we've um, starting to experience quite well at Umbo, where it's this cohesive machine sort of moving and everyone's sort of flowing in and around themselves really well. And therefore any of those little problems that crop up are squashed pretty quickly. Yeah. Yep. There's a pathway, pathway for them. Yeah. That's right. Because it's it's impossible, of course, to determine what are the problems you're going to face. So it's to me as a leader, it's about making sure your people know and have the liberty to solve them as they come. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's back to that empowering the client, empowering the staff member person to have permission to self-solve. 
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a couple more minutes. What uh, what sort of predictions have you got for us for 2022? Ugh. You know, politicians are scrabbling around a little bit. You know, what uh, what do you reckon the next year is going to look like? I would. I wish I could be that forthright in <laughs> suggesting that. I mean, I'm glad you didn't ask me this at the end of 2019 in our last call. I, I think we're on the way to a climate protest march, weren't we? One of the last right. conversations we <laughs> right. had. We oh, were, that's right. Climate change is still a we problem, were, Yeah, it? yeah, that's still a thing. We were sprinting through the streets of Melbourne to um, get there. Yeah, climate change, that's one. So what do you think? What do you what do you think the next 12 months is going to bring? Um, you mean globally? Yeah, go global. You're sure. a global thinker. Go global. Well, I'm hoping that, you know, with this whole vaccine passport thing, there'll be some resumption of things like travel and so forth. And it wouldn't it won't be normal, whatever that was, as in let's say pre-2020, but there'll be some resumption of, you know, activities that mm-hmm. we were sort of more used to. And I think um, you know, as talk of pandemics become sort of dies down a little bit, I think the talk of climate change is going to be more and more coming to the fore. I mean, there already are, I think, some surveys out there that suggest yep. this is still a bigger issue for people than yep. um yep. COVID, which is yep incredible and uh, concerning and also heartening, but it is in the forefront of people's minds. So I think we'll see people really making choices around what benefits um, people and planet more. So, you know, in our little bubble of social enterprise, I think we'll see more social enterprises and we'll see more reporting on social impact and um, consumers will have the choice of, picking those brands as they kind of already do yeah. with thank yeah. you water and sorry, thank you group yeah. and who gives a crap, et cetera. Yeah. We'll just see more and more of that. And then hopefully we'll see more clinicians um, interested in working for social enterprises that can make a difference too. Um, they'll they'll want to be part of this movement because they realize that in the everyday choices that we make collectively, that's the kind of world that we determine. You know, again, just to go back to the start of Umbo, when we set out with Umbo, we, we could have not gone down the social enterprise route and even things like that 50% use of profit, we were told by some people would be too restrictive for us and we'd never be able to, you know, be able to seek investment and so forth. But it was this decision about, well, what kind of world are we trying to create here? Mm. And am I just going to completely accede to the world which is around me or am I going to try and make a stance and change it? And when we thought about it that way, it became very clear to us that this was the right thing to do. So I do hope, maybe it's more of a hope than a prediction, that in 2022 and beyond, we'll see a lot more people making those sort of choices. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I totally back you on that one. We're um, going to be seeing more and more of informed choice. I hope so. And, you know, I mean, then to zoom right into our little area of online therapy, we'll hopefully see a bigger uptake. Yep. Yep. From both families and clinicians. Hope so. Yeah. Yep. You can have the talking stick for the last moment. What would you, what else, is there anything else you would like listeners to uh, to think about? I think probably if I'd get them to focus on one thing, it would be our discussion about um, choice and informed choice and that statistic that I pulled out about, you know, clients often demand things and let's just not say online therapy, let's just say service of a certain kind mm. and clinicians not wanting to provide it and to, to take that real deep breath and be self-aware about where they are in the scheme of things and that 
it's our responsibility really to give up our power and to empower those families and communities in our work. Um, that's very much at the core of health services in general, I think. Um, and I guess, you know, final thing that we are like every online clinic or every clinic full stop, every employer always looking for more how are you recruiting? Are you are you wanting more? Okay, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm just surprised. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. That's that was about as um, believable as my what pandemic. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so, speech and occupational therapists mm. that believe in rural access to therapy, we want to talk and um, let's start that conversation. Do reach out. The website is umbo.com.au. Umbo.com.au. Um, Let's get in touch. And we, thank you, thank you, thank you, as always, love our conversations. We need to make sure that we're in touch, you know, well in between of climate uh, climate protest marches. So, um, yeah, let's make sure we kind of check back in in the next six months or so, see where you guys are up to. That would be great. And then you can see how wrong all my predictions were for 2022. That's all right. It's Okay. I'm just as keen to use my passport as you are. So um, I'll believe I'll believe all of that. Thank you. Stay well. Thanks, Regards Kathy. to the, uh, the team and the Umbo crew. And, uh, yeah, we'll uh, get you back in sooner rather than later. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Private Practice Made Perfect podcast. For show notes and other resources, please visit practicemadeperfectpodcast.com. While you are there, you can subscribe for future episodes and continue your business adventure with me. And please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends and colleagues. The Private Practice Made Perfect podcast is brought to you by Experts on Air Podcast Network.